0: wonderful to have us this, this Sunday morning at Summerhill Church. My name's Steve Frederick, uh, I'm the Senior Minister here uh, and especially if you're visiting or you're kind of new around here, we're really thrilled to have you with us. Please do say uh, hello after the service. Um, a few little technical hitches this morning means that I don't have a QR, QR code on the bottom of your service outline for questions, Uh, But we are going to be taking questions over the next three weeks, as we work through this passage of 1 Corinthians, and particularly reflect on what is the Christian hope of the resurrection. It's going to take us three weeks to unpack the rest of this chapter, and so we thought it is going to be worth us having questions along the way, because how we think about ourselves, our bodily selves, our physical selves, uh, is something that we perhaps don't often stop to give much thought to. Uh, but it touches on some of the deepest ways in which we think about ourselves and how we relate to others as well. So I do have my mobile number there, please feel free to SMS them through uh, and if we do have any questions we'll have a crack at answering them. If the questions only strike you later on today, f- still feel free to send them through, uh, the evening service might benefit from your questions uh, and, um, and I'm more than happy to get back to you uh, with my attempt at an answer as well. I'm going to pray as we do begin, and I'm going to pray as well this morning for those who are away on the Kick Conference uh, up in Katoomba today, over this weekend, the youth program, which is why some of the folk aren't here, some families aren't here today, uh, at a conference up in the Blue Mountains, uh, and so I'll pray for the youth and for the leaders uh, as they get their way through what is no doubt a really encouraging weekend for them. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we do thank you for uh, the youth of Summer Hill Church, for, for their growing and deepening knowledge of you and their love and delight in you. Father, we do pray over the course of this weekend, uh, as they listen to your word being taught, uh, they would come to see the Lord Jesus more clearly and in so doing that they would see your faithfulness and your character more clearly uh, and that that would overflow uh, through the Holy Spirit in delight and joy in you. And Father, we do particularly pray that you would sustain and encourage the leaders uh, as they love and care for the kids, as well as paying attention to all their uh, their needs and safety and so on as well. And we do ask that you would sustain them, not only over the remainder of this weekend, the leaders, but that you would also give them what energy they need uh, to launch into their week uh, as they return as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, I do have a service outline, a talk outline on the sheet, and you're more than welcome to follow that along together with you. And as was mentioned, we're going to be looking this week, we, last week we looked at the opening of Chapter 15 and Chapter 15's teaching about the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and we're going to continue uh, with that theme over this week and the coming two. Uh, one of the ways that we, I think probably one of the primary, primary ways that we tend to think And relate to the future is by way of anticipation, anticipation. Now, we we as a society depend on a whole bunch of tools of anticipation, tools that help us guess and anticipate what might be awaiting us, at least in the immediate future. We depend on news feeds to make sure that our understanding of the future, of where it might be heading, is as up-to-date as possible, We are constantly, perhaps, if you're like me, being distracted by phone notifications so that we're not missing what is just about to happen in our own friendship and family groups. We listen to the thoughts and opinions of thought leaders who claim to be able to tell us where human history, perhaps our own society, is taking its next step towards. We seek to anticipate the future. Our confidence about the future often depends on how up-to-date our information feels to us. Anticipating what the future might hold for us, though, can be at the same time both exhilarating as well as being the source of debilitating anxiety. Anticipation of what may or may not lie ahead of us can be at the same time both exciting and paralyzing in equal measure motivating and immobilising. Think for a moment about the excitement that might be generated by an eagerly anticipated meal with dear friends, at a restaurant perhaps that you've been longing to go out to and try for ages. Half the fun in waiting for that moment, doesn't it, doesn't it lie in the anticipation of what might be on the menu at that restaurant, in anticipating what hilarious and encouraging conversation might fill your evening together with those dear friends. But once the menu is in your hands, we might equally become incapacitated with anxiety as we try and anticipate whether the chilli noodles are likely to give us indigestion come bedtime whether the risotto is to be a disappointingly soggy affair, whether during the, our dining companions who are eating with us, whether they might silently judge us for selecting the side of fries rather than the side of salad. Anticipation can both be exhilarating and motivating, but also debilitating and anxiety-inducing as we think about the future. Likewise, with our relationships with others, the excitement of newly developing friendships or relationships are initially often buzzing with exhilarating anticipations for what that relationship might become. And yet over the medium to long term, having to continually guess at or anticipate how the other person feels about the relationship, what the relationship actually is, where it might be going, that kind of anticipation can so easily become the soil in which all kinds of debilitating worry and anxiety can grow and develop, can't it? Because of its very nature, uncertain, open-ended, anticipation can never allow us to simply rest confidently in what lies ahead. Anticipation leaves our future constantly open to revision and uncertain. But in Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, the Scriptures offer Christians an alternative way of thinking about the future, a different way of relating to what lies ahead of us, a more concrete, certain and comforting take on the future that the Bible describes as hope. Uh, Let's have a look at how Paul uh, begins launching into this idea of how the Christians relate to the future on the basis of hope, rather than anticipation. Guesswork. Have a look with me at verse 19, which is where we'll begin. Paul writes, and this is where we left off on Easter Day. Paul writes, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. But Christ has indeed... Been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Notice here that hope, that Christian confidence in the future is grounded firmly in Jesus' own past experience of a bodily resurrection from the dead. Now, to help us grasp the relevance of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead for how we think about the future ourselves, Paul turns to this agricultural and religious metaphor of first fruits, which perhaps explains a little bit of why there's a faux apple tree beside me on my right. Um, We're going to take a moment to explore this metaphor, this idea that Paul uses to help us understand why Jesus' resurrection matters to us. We'll take a moment to explore both the promise of this first fruits idea and the purpose of first fruits, the promise and the purpose of describing Jesus' resurrection as first fruits. Uh, To begin with, first fruits are a sign of promise, a sign of promise. Uh, As the first spring or summer fruits begin to form on the tree, they signal that a much larger crop of fruit is certain to be following along close behind. I wonder if you've ever bought a new fruit tree. Perhaps it's taken a couple of years to even get any fruit on it. But as soon as there's even the measliest little bit of fruit showing on it, you get excited about what might follow after it, the kind of fruit that might yet follow in its wake. That first single fruit is a guarantee, a promise that a much fuller crop. Or harvest is on the way. I wonder if you've ever moved to a new house, maybe it's a house that you've bought or a rental property that you've shifted to and you found in the backyard or maybe in the front yard a fruit tree that you're not exactly sure what kind of fruit tree it is. You're uncertain, is it a a nectarine, is it a peach tree, Uh, is it a plum? A lot of the time they look kind of similar to each other and you're left guessing a little bit about what it might deliver But once that first single fruit ripens on the tree, you no longer need to guess at, you no longer need to anticipate what kind of fruit that tree is going to produce, because it's not going to produce anything other than what that first fruit is produced. If it was a nectarine, then every other fruit that it produces from then on in is going to be of the same kind. There is no longer a need to guess at, wonder at, anticipate nervously, what might follow. And in the same way, Jesus' own resurrected body is kind of like a guarantee or a promise of what our own experience of the bodily resurrection is going to be like. Our own bodily resurrections will follow along in exactly the same pattern as Christ's. However, there's more going on with this first fruits language here than just saying Jesus' resurrection is the the first blush, so to speak, of what we ourselves will also experience. In the Old Testament Scriptures, the first fruits of any agricultural crop, uh, the first fruits of any flock of animals, even the first fruits of any dough that's used in baking a batch of bread, was always to be presented to God as an offering, a first fruits offering to God. Now, these offerings were set aside for the specific purpose of giving public recognition to God's faithfulness, of giving public recognition to God's power to provide. Uh, let me read to you these verses from Deuteronomy. Uh, they'll pop up on the screen. Uh, these verses uh, give us a bit of an insight into where this first fruits language has come from. Writing to Israel, who were just being freed from Egypt and about to enter into the Promised Land... Moses instructed them with these words. When you have entered into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. And then a few verses later, place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Here, the first fruit offering was a concrete recognition of God's power to provide. That that basket of fruit was a symbol, was a sign, a concrete recognition of God's power to deliver into Israel's hands the promised land and to produce and deliver the blessing and the fruitfulness that came from that act of salvation that God acted for His people. And in the same kind of way, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is first fruits. it's a concrete recognition of God's power to deliver victory, not just victory into a promised land, but victory from the power of everything in all creation that might threaten us. Uh, have a look with me, where, with where Paul goes with that idea, in the verses that follow, from verse 24. Having just spoken about Christ as being a first fruit, Paul continues on to write, verse 24, Then the end will come, when he hands, that is, God hands over the kingdom, oh, sorry, when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign is, until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death and then skipping down to verse 28. When He has done this, then the Son Himself will be made subject to Him who put everything under Him, so that God may be all in all. Here we see this idea of, just as with this fruit basket in the time of Israel entering into the Promised Land, just as that basket of fruit was a public sign, a recognition of God's power to deliver victory over to them as they entered into the Promised Land, So here, Jesus' resurrection is a public sign, a recognition of God's power to ultimately deliver victory over everything in all creation, even victory over death itself and every other power that might threaten us. Without the promise of the resurrection, without the public recognition of God's power to deliver the promise of resurrection... Then Paul goes on to say, the whole Christian approach to living life will increasingly feel a a vain and fruitless exercise. Paul proceeds to give us three examples of why, without the resurrection, the whole process of living the Christian life might begin to feel unsteady, pointless, even vain. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 29, where Paul gives us his first reflection on this point. Verse 29. Paul writes, Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? Now, it's perhaps not immediately obvious exactly what question Paul is posing here. One group of people being baptised for another, what exactly is Paul drawing our attention to? Now, I think Paul certainly isn't speaking about people who are getting baptised in the place of others who had previously died, as if there are some folk who have died and they missed out on the chance to get baptised, so others are subbing in for them and being baptised in their place. I don't think that that is what Paul is speaking about here, although perhaps you might have been familiar with those kind of ideas being expressed elsewhere. The Mormon Church, for example, understands that verse that way and so they will sometimes look back in history at people who haven't been baptised and they'll get members of their church to stand in and be baptised in their place, as if they can kind of sneak people into God's kingdom by being baptised on their behalf once they had already passed into death. That's not what Paul is reflecting on here. See, the word, the word for in this sentence can just as easily be translated because of, or on account of, or motivated by. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on account of them? Because of them? Because of the, the, the Christians who have already died? Perhaps, as some people witnessed, Christian believers... Facing their death with hope rather than fear and despair, with, without any anxiety, superstition or dread, it attracted them to also seek baptism into the Christian faith themselves. As they saw the confidence of those Christians who died in hope of the resurrection, they too wanted to be baptised into the same confidence and faith. It's also possible, perhaps, that Paul has simply in mind here, those who embraced Christian baptism into the faith, in the hope of being reunited with their deceased Christian loved ones on the day of the resurrection. They had seen their loved ones who had placed faith in Christ be baptized into the hope of the resurrection, and they too wanted to share in that resurrection so that they might see their lost ones once again. And so they themselves embraced baptism in the hope of being reunited with their lost ones once again. Uh, Either way, Jesus himself, if he wasn't raised bodily from the dead, leaves us with no reason to hope that the bodily resurrection might be something within our own grasp. Only if the Lord Jesus himself has been raised from the dead, can any of the remainder of us have the hope of sharing in it as well. Secondly, Paul points to the importance of the resurrection for making sense of his own pattern of living, for the the way in which he himself lived his life as an apostle. Have a look with me at verses 30 to 32. Verse 30 to 32. And Paul writes, and as for us, as for us apostles, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every, every every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I think it's most likely there that in referring to these wild beasts that Paul faced in his ministry as an apostle, he's simply referring to the opposition that he constantly faced, both from Satan and from others, as he sought to make the Lord Jesus known, suffering, hardship, persecution, on account of preaching the hope of the resurrection. But if there really is no resurrection from the dead, Paul is saying, why on earth would I endanger myself in the way that I do, day in and day out? Why on earth, Paul says, would I sacrifice my life in service of God's honour and praise if there is no resurrection of the dead, to fill me with hope? Why on earth would Paul pour out his own life in the service of a church like the one in Corinth, if there was no resurrection from the dead to sustain him? Except that he was confident both he and the Corinthians were destined for the hope of the resurrection themselves. That hope is what fueled Paul in his pouring out of this life in the confidence that God would return life to him at the resurrection. Indeed, Paul says, if these bodies have only a relatively small amount of miles left in the tank, so to speak, why would we invest much attention or care at all in how we use them? If our bodies are just about done for, why would we give very much thought to how we use them? And it seems that was really what the Corinthians' own attitude about their own bodies was themselves. Have a look with me at our final few verses. Verse 33. Do not be misled, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. It seems that for Corinthians, their failure to appreciate the hope of the bodily resurrection had made them pretty cavalier with what they did with their own bodies. Uh, When we moved to Summer Hill, um, we had upgraded our Honda um, People Mover, which was just about falling apart uh, to a new one. But we couldn't get anything for the old one. Like we were offered such a little pitiful amount of money that we decided to keep the older one as a bit of a runaround car until it just eventually died. The problem was, the old car miraculously seemed to keep on going. We didn't need to get any repairs done, it just seemed to last and last. But apart from the mechanics in every other way, it began to deteriorate terribly. Every time it rained more and more water would seep into it. And for the first few times, I tried to keep up the appearance of the car. I'd clean it out, give it a bit of a shampoo, take it down to the car wash and get it cleaned out. By the end, it had begun to deteriorate so quickly, I had so little hope that the car was salvageable, that i just cut the top off a drink bottle and left it in the car to bail out the water every time it filled in. It was when I gave up hope all hope of the mechanic's capacity to redeem that car, that I actually ended up abandoning all care of it. I just did as I wished with it, with no thought about what the longer-term consequences might have been. I had no hope that it was going to have any ongoing significance for me. And so I undervalued what it was to me. It's often been a repeated opinion that the Christian faith holds... The physical body, even the sexual bodies, to be a shameful, even a hopelessly compromised thing. That our physical bodies are so compromised that we're really just waiting until God saves us from them, releases us from them, lets us escape from them. I wonder perhaps if you've yourself ever despaired of your own bodily self, of its limitations of the shame that perhaps has been attached to it by the things that you've done with your body or the way in which others have treated your body. Perhaps you've given yourself to hopeless resignation, that you're just longing for the day in which you're set free from it, in which its griefs and pains, its past shames, will no longer be a reminder to you and you'll be able to cast it off. Such a take on our bodily selves couldn't be further from the way in which God sees our bodily selves. Uh, Back in chapter 6 of Paul's letter, he had already established that God holds even these frail, compromised, mortal bodies of ours in much higher honour and esteem than we ourselves often do. Beginning with exactly the same phrase, have a look with me, Paul writes, I've got that up on the screen... Uh, I'm reading a few little snippets from chapter 6 here, from verse 9, verses 14 to 15, uh, and verse uh, 19 as well. Paul writes there, very similar language, actually, as verse 33 in our chapter 15 begins with, don't be deceived. So this little section, Paul warns the Corinthians, don't be deceived. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? No doubt many of us tend to associate our physical selves with some of our greatest moments of shame and failure. Perhaps we can even despair of ever really, as believers, as Christians, being fully at home in these bodies of ours, perhaps because of what they remind us of, perhaps we already view these bodies as a lost cause, as dishonoured beyond redemption. But Paul is saying, in this morning's passage, that we're not to resign ourselves to sin's reign in and through our bodies... For God establishes and esteems them so highly that He dwells within them by His Spirit and He will restore and raise them at the resurrection. These bodies of ours are the very ones that God's own Spirit already at this moment dwells within. These bodies are the same ones that God will raise to share Jesus' own glorious immortality. We dare not treat them carelessly. Or with disrespect or with dishonour, imagining that they're just going to be cast off in a moment's time. Uh, That may well leave you with the question, well, if we're going to be raised from the dead, then with what kinds of bodies are we going to be raised? And in fact, that's exactly where Paul is going to take us, the kind of question that Paul is going to deal with next week, we're not going to go into that this morning, but what I do want to leave us with as we wind up this morning is this, that it is God, not us, who will ultimately clothe our bodies in glory and honour. The Christian hope isn't somehow that we're going to be able to fashion an image for ourselves that will be glorious, that we will be able to feel confident in an eternity, but God Himself is going to clothe these frail bodies of ours with the same glory that Jesus' own resurrected body enjoys. More about that next week. Friends, God does not leave us to guess, to endlessly speculate over or anxiously anticipate what the future holds for us and for our physical selves. In Jesus' resurrection, God has given us a concrete promise of what we ourselves are destined for, Because of its very uncertainty, its open-endedness, anticipation can never allow us to rest securely or confidently in what the future might bring. Anticipation leaves our thinking about the future constantly in flux, uncertain, open to constant revision. But in Jesus' resurrection, God has given us a very different way to think about the future, one that is grounded in a concrete hope, of sharing in Jesus' own bodily resurrection from the dead, a hope that will and should begin to transform and change how we think about and how we use these bodies of ours that we still dwell in in the present. Let's pray and ask that this hope of sharing in Christ's bodily resurrection might indeed fill us with hope and transform the way in which we use these precious bodies that God has given us. Let's pray. Our dearest Father, so often our days and our nights are taken up with anxious anticipation about what may or may not yet lie ahead of us. But Father, we thank you that in Jesus' own bodily resurrection from the dead, you have given us a concrete and sure hope of what we ourselves are destined for. That we can be confident that we will share in the resurrection to life that Jesus himself enjoyed bodily, that you have not neglected or thrown away or discarded our own physical cells, but that you will restore and raise them as well. Father, fueled with that confident hope, we ask that you might enable us to honour you with all that we do with our bodies that we might honour you and one another in how we use them and what we do with them, in confident hope that even where they are frail and weak, where they bear the marks and reminders of past shame and failure, you are more than capable of clothing us in the same glory in which you have clothed your Son, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Up from the grave.